Hi, and welcome to this special edition of Long Story Short, which we're broadcasting live from London. Long Story Short is DevX's new show dedicated to money, news and data for global development. I'm Jessica Abrahams, I'm DevX's Europe editor, and I'm here with UK correspondent Molly Anders. And we're going to be talking about the scandal that's erupted over revelations of sexual misconduct among a small number of Oxfam staff and what that means for the aid community as a whole. Do feel free to get involved if you have any questions, just pop them underneath the video and we'll try to get to them at the end of the conversation. Um, this is a huge story with many different strands to it, there's a lot of questions to dig into um, and it's likely to have reverberations across the sector. Um, but let's start by keeping it focused and looking at Oxfam and what this means for them. So maybe we should start, Molly, by talking about what's actually happened and how we've got here. Right, absolutely. So um, as most of you know, um, after the 2011 earthquake in Haiti, there was this huge flood of humanitarian effort to get to Haiti. Uh, one of the organizations on the ground was, of course, Oxfam. Um, and the chief of Haiti, the person that was hired to be the head of the country office there, as well as several other Oxfam employees, um, both national staff and international staff, were apparently allegedly involved in hiring prostitutes, um, allegedly local women, and this is frankly against the humanitarian code, namely because people in those contexts are considered to be vulnerable. Um, so paying them for sex obviously would uh, obviously damage them in, in many ways, and I think also the added element of, of the unsure um, age of these girls. I think we didn't know necessarily if they were of age, they might have been underage, so obviously there could have been some child prostitution uh, issues there too. Oxfam conducted its own investigation after the misconduct came to light in 2000 and I think it was 11, just after. Um, and so they, in their investigation, found no evidence, um, supposedly, of child prostitution, but they did say they found misconduct. They allowed three employees, I think, to resign, and I think they sacked, what was it, five others? Four others. Right, so that happened. And then a few years later, you know, because of this Times article, I think it was, it came to light that the nature of the misconduct, which was obviously sexual exploitation of, um, you know, women, uh, presumably women, uh, Haitian women, uh, as prostitutes. So the details of the misconduct have come out. It's not really clear at this point, I don't think, that Oxfam made that clear when they reported the misconduct to the Charity Commission in 2011. Don't know if they made the nature of the misconduct necessarily clear, and I think that's where we are now. Anything you'd like to add? Yeah, so obviously the behaviour and what happened was bad enough, um, but Oxfam did conduct its own internal investigation and in a way, um, you know, as we've seen after Me Too and everything, um, these things infect every sector and there's no reason that the aid community should, should be immune from it. Um, but when they do happen, they have to be dealt with properly and I think there are questions about um, how Oxfam handled it, whether they were truly transparent with the Charity Commission, the UK Charity Regulator, um, and the fact that these men were then allowed to go on and, um, and find work elsewhere in the aid sector, which is um, a question we're going to come on, on to later, a question about how that's allowed to happen and, and what we can do to tackle it. Definitely. I think to maybe, you know, to help kick off, I'd like to see just like, how did you report on this? How did you start this project? You know, the, the news was breaking from the Times, we had stuff coming from other aid organizations talking about um, their processes and whether or not it was exploitation, et cetera. Like, how did you get started on this story? It has been a, a huge topic to cover because the news has happened so quickly. So, so first, the story first broke on Friday, 
when the Times published its first report um, leaking details of the internal report and so on. Um, it then published uh, a further story on Saturday um, indicating that some of these men had gone on to work at other organisations. Um, on Sunday, the Observer published a story suggesting that one of the men involved, the country director for Haiti, actually concerns about him had been raised previously when he was working in Chad. Um, by Monday, Penny Lawrence, the deputy chief executive, had resigned. Um, Oxfam was called to meet with Penny Mordaunt, uh, the UK aid chief. Um, the charity commission had launched a statutory inquiry into Oxfam, which is uh, one of the most serious um, actions they can take. Um, so there's been a huge amount to cover and a huge amount to keep on top of, um, and there have been kind of other organisations brought into it as well that have been affected. Um, so it's, yeah, we've had to keep our eyes on a lot of things in covering the story. Mm. And then the thrust of your story, the story that we put out on Monday, um, what was that? Can you tell me a little bit about what that revealed? I think we, we saw that there were going to be meetings between DFID and Oxfam and also Oxfam and the Charity Commission. Yeah, so one of the main um, kind of focuses of that story um, was a list of demands that Penny Morden has set out, um, not just for Oxfam, uh, although she'd been clear that she expected Oxfam to kind of show more leadership on this issue if they're to remain a, a partner of DFID, but actually she's been very clear that this is um, a problem across the aid sector and, and she set out a list of, um, of actions that DFID's going to take to try and reform the sector. Um, as part of that, she's called a summit of aid leaders, which is going to gather before the end of the month um, to try and discuss safeguarding issues and the indication is that that would be leading up to a bigger conference later in the year. Um, she's proposed certain measures such as a global register of aid workers um, so that everybody would have to be, all development workers would have to be on this list and they wouldn't, the idea is it would prevent them from um, people who have been accused of misconduct from moving from organisation to organisation. Uh, she's setting up a special safeguarding unit within DFID, um, so there's a lot of different um, reforms and plans that are coming out of this. Mm. And you're, you know, you're on social media quite a lot. Like, what has been the reaction for aid professionals on social media, in your opinion? How has how is, how is the reaction come in? Well, I think the reaction among aid professionals actually is um, horror, of course, that this could happen, but also a feeling of concern um, that this, um, about the effect that this is going to have on public trust in the sector, funding, especially at a time um, when the sector is kind of struggling, to, to make the case for funding as it is. Um, so I think there's a general feeling of concern among aid professionals. And then of course among the general public on social media are seeing a lot of people saying that they're not going to donate to Oxfam anymore. Um, I think a thousand people cancelled their regular donations to Oxfam over the weekend. Um, so this is something that could hit Oxfam and the sector more widely in the pocket and that's worrying. Yeah, absolutely. I think I saw an AP survey that came out yesterday that said 60% of people in Britain were less likely now to donate to Oxfam, which is really terrifying when you look at Oxfam's business model. Um, only recently have they started to scale back their dependence on individual donations, but I think it's still something a little less than 30%, and then the rest is institutional funding. So absolutely, they're one organization that prides itself on individual donations, and this is a little bit horrifying for them, I'm sure. Yeah, and obviously compared to a lot of charities, Oxfam has a very strong brand. It's, um, it's very well known, it's very well established, it's trusted. Um, they have all these charity shops scattered around the country. Um, so if Oxfam isn't able to withstand something like this, um, I think it's quite worrying about the charities. This is, I think, it's worth saying, um, 
the second scandal, the second such scandal to hit Oxfam in recent months. Um, the Times ran a similar story back in October, um, which showed that seven senior Oxfam officials had been investigated for safeguarding issues, including uh, sexual harassment and so on, within the previous year, which was a significant jump on figures from previous years. Um, so they kind of withstood that shock and now they've been hit by another scandal just a few months later. So it is a big challenge uh, from a branding and from a trust point of view. Mm, absolutely. I think that, you know, maybe we're sort of jumping a little bit around in terms of topics, but that reporting aspect is so important, I think, because Oxfam, as a result of that misconduct in Haiti, was one of the first organizations to put in place these rigorous reporting mechanisms um, to make it somewhat easier for people to report uh, sexual exploitation. And part of what we're seeing in this, this rise in numbers and this rise in reported cases from Oxfam is because of that mechanism and because people feel more comfortable reporting. So it's a bit of a, you know, a double-edged sword um, that actually means in some sense that the reporting mechanisms are working. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I've heard from many uh, people working in the humanitarian sector that they were following Oxfam's lead up until this point, that they've, they've been kind of a model for behavior in terms of sexual exploitation. How do you feel this is, this is tying into the Me Too movement and this, this aid to mm. movement as well? Well, I do think it's quite interesting that it's only recently that these stories have started to pick up traction. Um, obviously, the issue of so sexual violence in the aid sector is nothing new. Uh, at DevEx, we've been reporting on it for a long time and with a particular focus um, over the past year or so, our excellent colleague Sophie Edwards has been covering this um, quite intensely. Um, but it's really only since Me Too, since, you know, in the last few months, that these stories have really started picking up traction in a major way. They've started causing public outrage, um, they've been picked up in the mainstream media, which they never were before. Um, and that is quite concerning for the aid community. Um, but it's, it is also actually a good thing that these stories are gaining traction. Um, and it makes you think, could this be a catalyst for change? Could this moment be a catalyst for change? Mm, absolutely. I guess moving into kind of the HR aspect of this, um, you know, one of the big conversations that seems to be happening now among humanitarian organizations is how could this have been prevented by better HR systems, better recruiting, better safeguarding on the ground to make sure that, you know, the do no harm mantra is actually being fulfilled. Um, and humanitarian organizations structurally uh, operate quite differently than other sectors. You have to be able to deploy almost in a matter of hours after a disaster strikes, whether it's a natural disaster or a civil war. Um, almost, you know, I think in an ideal world, humanitarian organizations would have the capacity to deploy almost like military organizations or military branches in the industrialized world. Um, but obviously there's not a budget for that. There's not a budget for that kind of capacity. So humanitarian organizations have kind of shaped their HR systems and their recruiting systems in some ways in, uh, under sort of strain. And now as we see this big squeeze on funding for humanitarian aid, um, you could say that that's even gotten worse in recent years. But you know, when they do deploy, it, it seems that now humanitarian organizations and HR organizations or HR departments um, specifically are asking whether or not it's fit for purpose. You know, are these typical HR systems that you might see uh, in the private sector, outside of aid, outside of development as well? You know, are they right? You know, should we be doing something that's not just faster, but also more rigorous? Um, that's also taking into account past employment. Um, the, the angle that I took, you know, after this. Hit because we're DevEx, of course, we wanted to look at how HR departments are handling this uh, and how this will affect HR and other humanitarian organizations as a result of it. And it seems like the consensus is that there needs to be a big change. Um, and one of the big changes, I think, is in recruitment and how we choose these people. Because as you said, 
um, at least one of these guys had worked in an aid organization with it. one had worked in Oxfam before, and what were the others? They had worked in other aid organizations too. Yeah, so the the guy who's been at the center of this storm, the the country director in Haiti, uh, he had previously worked for Oxfam in Chad, where concerns about him had been raised. He had also previously been sacked from a, an organization when he was working in Liberia. So these issues had come up over and over again, and somehow he'd been allowed to move from country office to country office, from organization to organization. Um, and it does seem like that's an issue of just coordination. And as you say, uh, in an emergency situation, you have to deploy people very fast. You don't necessarily um, have a chance to vet them as closely as you'd like. Um, but there are ways around this. And I think you've been reporting, Molly, on some of the ideas and some of the ways we can tackle this. Absolutely. I mean, one of the key ones, I think, and probably the lowest budget change that we can make kind of right now is how we approach references. Um, I think in the humanitarian sector, or most, of, most organizations in the humanitarian sector require two to three references. And these aren't really uh, very rigorously checked in the ways that we would hope. You know, for example, you don't actually have to get a reference from your previous organization, just a previous manager. So because turnover is so high in the humanitarian sector, you know, part of the nature of the work, um, you're often getting references from people who are no longer at the organization themselves. So you're not necessarily getting a sense of how they operated within their previous workplace. Whereas if you were to call up the organization and ask to speak with someone who has spent time with them in the office or on the ground, you might get a better sense of their personality, of any issues that arose. Um, the other issue is uh, a lot of organizations don't feel that they can disclose information about why an employee left. Um, often if there's some if there's some investigation and the person is not found to be guilty, the organization still wants them out of the organization, so they'll give them the chance to resign. Uh, and when they do that, um, it's almost a mercy, and I don't think rightfully so, a mercy to that employee, um, because then they're able to go and, and uh, apply to another organization, give a reference that just says they chose to leave. Um, and then the organization can call up the, the previous employer and you know, ask why, they left, but that organization isn't legally required to disclose that information. And of course, those organizations are legally nervous as well, because um, in very few cases have these people been prosecuted in a court of law, um, which is another issue we're going to be following up, um, following up in our coverage. Um, but without uh, a court conviction, organizations are worried that if they start kind of going around saying that somebody was accused of misconduct or something, does that put them in a, a legally difficult position? Hmm. Absolutely, as you said, in these humanitarian contexts, often the rule of law is broken down. Um, it's usually crippled or non-existent. Um, and so the option of trying to prosecute someone remotely is often left to the organization, which doesn't have the investigative infrastructure to send uh, people there and to rigorously conduct an investigation. Um, so that, yeah, that absolutely leaves the burden on the organization to investigate and prove misconduct or exploitation. Uh, and often they fail at that, uh, which again results in the situation where employees are allowed to resign because they weren't proven guilty. Uh, and there's also the question of decentralization and the increased localization of, of uh, humanitarian work, which in many ways is a great thing, I think we'd all agree, but also comes with um, difficulties in terms of the robustness of recruitment and, and safeguarding practices, I think. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, a lot of organizations now are decentralizing. We've seen Oxfam, they were one of uh, the first to do it. Um, the Red Cross has done it. Islamic Relief is looking into decentralizing to give more power to the regional and national offices. And that's a wonderful idea, you know, in the sense it empowers national staff. It means that uh, aid and humanitarian initiatives are locally owned and locally driven. 
But at the same time, in a, in a humanitarian context, when you're rushing to deploy, often the last types of experts you send, you know, you send your water expert, um, you send a shelter expert, the last kind of expert you're sending is typically someone from HR who's going to be looking out for those warning signs um, and is going to be looking at the welfare of employees. The other issue is that still, even though we are facing this decentralizing trend, which is largely positive, we're still seeing national staff treated quite differently than international staff. Um, national staff, and specifically in humanitarian contexts, are given very short-term contracts often, you know, sometimes as short as two or three months. Um, and some of the people that I spoke to said that this created an environment among national staff of, of fear. They didn't feel like if they had a conflict with their supervisor or had a complaint about their supervisor, they didn't feel safe saying anything about it because it would put uh, their contract at risk and their employment at risk for that next three months. Are there any solutions to that? I know Oxfam, for example, had a, a whistleblowing line, but obviously hasn't worked as effectively as it could. Right. I mean, the people that I spoke to who were national staff uh, for Oxfam said that there was a whistleblowing line, but that nobody trusted it. And I find that really interesting because I think there are things that organizations can do to make those mechanisms more trustworthy, uh, to make those channels be more trustworthy. I think they felt that complaints were getting stuck somewhere. Um, and if that's the case, I think organizations could make employees a little more clued in and a little more knowledgeable about that process and give them multiple options rather than just an anonymous tip line. And beneficiaries as well, I suppose, because um, they're kind of a group of people that's been left out of this discussion a lot. We've been looking at aid workers, we've been looking at um, NGO staff. Um, but obviously, beneficiaries are also not feeling like they're empowered to speak up. Um, and we can only imagine the impact that these kind of incidents have on their trust in aid workers and in the sector. Mm, I think that, yeah, that's a great point. That's not something that we've really dug into enough, but I think the funding implications for Oxfam will certainly hit beneficiaries the hardest if we do indeed see a cut to funding um, to Oxfam. Yeah, that's terrifying. But of course, we've been talking a lot about Oxfam, but, but these issues aren't just limited to Oxfam. Um, what do you think are the implications for the sector as a whole and organisations generally? Um, is there a lot more to come on this? Oh my god, I'm afraid, I'm afraid so. I think, I think, you know, we've already seen a few stories trickling in about MSF, uh, about Save the Children. Uh, a few organizations have it's already come to light that they employed these people after uh, the incidents occurred, and obviously that puts them um, in, a, in a dangerous situation and obviously it makes them to some extent at fault. Um, so I think we are going to unfortunately see that the sexual abuse and sexual assault problem that we've seen in other industries, you know, humanitarian aid and development, are not immune to that. Um, I think we're, they're very much uh, part of the problem in the sense that we need to change our attitude and change the way that we function and build in mechanisms and safeguards in preparing for sexual assault rather than acting after the fact. Of course, there's a particular problem. Uh, we've both mentioned that these kind of incidents are happening in all sectors, there is a particular difficulty in the aid sector in that there's a big power imbalance um, between beneficiaries and between organisations, and any kind of power imbalance um, always leaves vulnerabilities for this kind of behaviour. Mm, absolutely, and I think that the way that humanitarian organisations are funded, as I said, they're very dependent on donors, on government donors. Um, and one of the stories I would like to dig into in the next couple of weeks is how donors prioritize HR and prioritize safeguarding in their program design and in the grant design. Um, often you, you think of the staff costs um, as, as being one element of a grant, but sometimes you know something that's not seen necessarily as a direct impact on beneficiaries doesn't get a high priority of funding. And often staff costs in HR are you know, indirect and considered sort of headquarter functions. Um, so often organizations are left to 
fund HR and fund these staff costs out of their general budgets, which as we know are, are starting to wane. As the discussion extends beyond the aid sector, you asked me at the beginning about how I think um, this fits into the Me Too movement. I'd be quite interested to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I think, you know, often the public, and especially the UK public, have an idea about what aid is and about what humanitarian aid is. They have an image in their mind of people going to the, <clears throat> to the site and handing out blankets and handing out food. When in reality, it is a much more complicated picture than that, and it is very, very similar in that sense to other in industries where sexual exploitation isn't expected, it should never be expected, but um, people seem less astounded when they, when they hear about it. Um, whereas I think people imagine humanitarian aid work to be very altruistic, uh, and it is in that sense, but I think it still makes it vulnerable to these kinds of problems. Yeah, I've spoken to NGO professionals over the last few days who are feeling a little frustrated that um, you know, it's terrible that, that these things have happened, but they're also happening in government, they're also happening in business, and I suppose they're feeling a little frustrated that it's the charity sector who are trying to do good in the world who are kind of really suffering from the scandal at the moment. But I suppose you're right in saying that for those very reasons the charity sector is held to a higher standard than those other organisations. Um, and as one, one of our, um, the members of one member of our community was saying earlier, um, the charity sector is also in a good position to to affect change on these issues because they're already dealing with these issues and the work they're doing with other groups. So they're in a good position to kind of start the chain here. Yeah, absolutely. I think I've seen like such a willingness to talk about how we could improve. You know, whereas organizations can be a little bit, um, you know, keep their cards close to their chest when they talk about their internal systems. Because of this, there's been like a really sudden sort of openness about those systems. And I think that's really encouraging and that's a good place to start. I wanted to ask, um, Someone posted, when we, put, we were posting the articles on Twitter, somebody wrote this comment uh, in terms of solutions, uh, comparing it to like how ships used to use like, passports and how uh, a captain would have to check a sailor or like a, a passenger's uh, little book, like this little passbook, in order to see their conduct under a previous captain. And if you didn't have the book when you got on the ship, that was considered really suspicious. One of the solutions we're seeing is this uh, supposed the humanitarian passport where a humanitarian aid worker's conduct in his previous employment uh, is, is all written there, is all available. And we're not really, we haven't really gotten into the legality of that yet. Um, you know, is it possible to put those details if allegations weren't proven, for example? Um, but I don't know, what did you think about that? That was a fun and interesting analogy. It's an interesting idea. It's blockchain coming up all over again. But yeah, I, I agree with you. The analogy with the, um, with, with the sailing industry was really interesting. Um, and obviously it would be much more secure if it was digital and held on blockchain, you know, you kind of think with those old paper books while someone could have forged it or torn out a page they didn't like or whatever. Um, so it's, a, it's an interesting idea, but as you say, there are legal difficulties and, um, and funding difficulties, I suppose, that are definitely yeah. is to come about. But there have been plenty of other suggestions. Um, one of the other ideas from Save the Children um, was to have a kind of um, emergency response unit of safeguarding ex experts that you, you could deploy to emergency situations and they'd be on the lookout for, for signs of misconduct uh, in a way that a lot of people who aren't trained to spot these things might miss. And would be independent. I think that's a really important point. I think their suggestion involved using DFID uh, as well as a, sort of a coalition of NGOs to create this kind of independent entity that would, as you said, deploy uh, in, the, in the early stages of a crisis. I think it's unclear yet where we would kind of house that. That seems like that would be within the UN's purview. Um, one other thing I wanted to say too about um, the problem kind of with making these lists and like keeping records, I think, of humanitarian aid workers' conduct, I think it, it might, uh, in some sense, 
widen the gap between national and international staff. Mm -hmm. Because you see often international staff coming from places where they might not have as robust justice system. Um, so those records could be, you know, bribed away, for example, or uh, you know, proverbially, proverbially uh, ripping the page out of the book in some yeah. sense. Um, so I think that's one issue. But I think that solution for the center uh, that Save mentioned is something that Penny Morden seems at least to be taking and running with. How likely do you think it is that we're going to see really the impact of any of these changes? Is this just a moment of outrage and everybody's saying they're going to make reforms and things are just going to stay, stay the same? That's a good question. It, a lot of people that I spoke to seemed concerned because seemed concerned because they said that this conversation has actually been happening for a long time among humanitarian aid organizations and that it's just coming into the media now. Um, and that organizations are trying to grapple with this and have been trying to grapple with it for a while. Um, so I think it's yet to be seen if we'll have real progress on that. I think this um, convening that Penny Warden wants to do uh, of government officials and others to talk about it, I think that's a great start. Um, but often, as we see with sort of international conferences, it's hard to say until we have the deliverables, until we have um, the agenda, like what will actually come from that. What do you think? Are you optimistic? Uh, I think it's very easy to say you're going to reform. The problem is that these issues are so systemic and they're so structural. How do you really get to the root of them? But I think some of the ideas that are being bounced around, especially in terms of recruitment and more coordination of NGOs, are definitely very interesting and definitely something that could make a positive change. And I think just the fact that people are talking about it more, more aware of it, people are feeling more confident to come forward about these issues because they're being taken seriously um, really for the first time, um, that's surely going to happen. Yeah, hopefully. I think, as I said, even seeing organizations open up a bit more about their HR systems has been hugely encouraging. And, you know, it does make me feel like there will be some shift in transparency, at least. I wonder, should we check if we have questions at all? Anything coming in? Yeah, we have um, three or four minutes left, so if you have any questions, just drop them beneath the video and um, we'll get to them now. Um, but as we come up to the end, I uh, just wanted to ask Molly, um, what are some of the stories you're going to be working on in the next week or two uh, on this issue? Uh, this is fitting because Jess is my editor, so this is actually yeah, just an opportunistic moment to plan our coverage. <laughs> um, I think the, one of the big stories I would like to look into, as I said, is thinking about how donors are budgeting for this and how traditionally donors look at humanitarian funding and humanitarian grant making um, when it comes to HR and recruiting practices. I, I don't know yet, you know, and I think this is what I want to find out, is how much, how involved DFID, for example, gets uh, when a humanitarian organization is about to deploy in who they choose. You know, is, is DFID keeping a record of these people, for example? Are they helping uh, create this pool of humanitarian aid workers that are quote-unquote eligible to go? Um, I think that's one really big story that I'd like to do. Uh, what are the others? There are a couple of the IGC has a committee hearing on Tuesday, I think, which we're going to be covering. Um, Oxfam and various other NGOs are going to be called to give evidence. Um, and then we have um, various other coverage. Um, our colleague Sophie is looking into the issue of legal immunity at the UN uh, and the impact of that. Could that change? Um, our colleague Vince, our Brussels correspondent, is um, looking at the impact on European organisations. And then we have colleagues uh, in Southeast Asia and Africa and so on who are looking at the issues on the ground. Um, anything else? I think that's it. I think you can expect uh, sort of an in-depth look at how this is affecting the aid industry, both on an organizational and a sector-wide level. Obviously, there's tons to do. There's a lot more to talk about, but I think we're going to have to sign off there. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Thanks.